Turn with me over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We're going to continue our study in 2 Peter. And we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 16. The title of this message is The Veracity of Peter's Ministry. The Veracity of Peter's Ministry. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16 through verse 21. Verse 16 through verse 21 of the first chapter of 2 Peter. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do, do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Lord, help us as we study. Last week we went over the context of the writer's writing the letter, meaning to whom he was writing, where he was writing from, um, and it's important to have context whenever you're reading a letter that's written by somebody else to somebody else, because there are things that are between the lines that you don't get, because you don't know how they relate, and that's why it's absolutely necessary. If you want to get all that you can out of Scripture, to do study beyond just the words written on the page. That you find out where the writer was. You find out where the readers were, the, the people to whom he was writing. You find out the circumstances in which they were. What kind of culture they had. You do your best to get the mindset that was in the writer. Uh, because depending upon where he is, he might write from a different perspective. Paul writes very differently to Timothy in prison than he writes to Corinth when he's not. Things can be said differently, emphases put on different words and different concepts. So it's important if you really want to get an understanding that you get all the interpretation as, as well as you possibly can before you get the application because if you don't get the right interpretation, rarely do you ever get the right application. And we are, we are very quick to apply passages without finding out what the writer had in mind when he first wrote it. So it's important for us to do that first, and then we can correctly apply passages. Here Peter is giving more verification for the le legitimacy of his ministry. And he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, to, to understand Peter a little bit differently than Paul, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Both of them were apostolic men. Paul wrote in a very linear fashion. He was much more of a teacher, although he was an exhorter as well. Peter was more of an exhorter than a teacher, and so he, he writes in chunks of revelation. Even though it is linear in his mind, it is not the same kind of linear as, as Paul's was. Now, with Paul, you'll see in many of his writings uh, cause and effect, meaning we did this, or you need to do this, therefore do this. 
And you'll see therefores, or so, all the time in Paul's writing. But rarely do you see it in Peter's writing. Paul was more cause and effect. This happened, therefore this happens. Peter was more effect and cause. It didn't mean that Peter had it backwards. It's just a different way of communicating. He would give you what happened and then tell you why. Paul said, I'm going to tell you why and then tell you what you need to do as a result. Here he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives you the how that happened, the foundation for why they did not. He says, first of all, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Now he's referring to the moment when he was on the mountain with Jesus. It's affectionately called the mountain of transfiguration, not because that was its name, but because of what happened when Jesus went up there with the disciples. Some have speculated that it was the exact mountain upon which Moses received the Ten Commandments or where, where things happened spiritually. We don't know. But we think it was a fairly important spiritual place. He asked, Jesus did, for Peter, James, and John to go with him. Now, this was about a year and a half into the ministry of Christ. And so the disciples had been with him quite a while. Yet they didn't, they didn't figure out everything. They, they, they knew he was the Messiah, but they didn't know all that that meant. They had left their jobs in order to make sure that when he did come to power, as the Messiah was to do, unseat Herod, who happened to be the de facto ruler over all of Israel, even though he was not a Jew, he was an Edomite, uh, and then take out Rome, who happened to be the master of Herod, use Herod as a puppet, as a ruler over Israel, and then set up a kingdom that would have no end, a messianic kingdom whose parameters and borders would not stop and whose time of reigning would never stop. Peace and prosperity unparalleled. This is what the messianic kingdom was supposed to be. The son of David was to usher in this kind of rule. So they realized Jesus was, Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was really special. But as much as they understood that they thought he was setting up an earthly kingdom and they were willing to give up their jobs to follow him because they realized he's going to give me a job when he comes into power. I'm, I'm working on his political campaign right now. And I want an appointment someplace, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Treasury, something. Judas was looking for the treasury, by the way. <laughs> they were trying to figure out how they could get involved with his reign. That's why they left their jobs. But they didn't understand much about his godness. They didn't get that. They were coming into it. The previous chapter, and Matthew writes intentionally in order to give progression of revelation, not just chronologically, but revelatory. How people became more knowledgeable, uh, more knowledgeable about who Jesus was. So in Matthew 16, you see the revelation coming to, to Peter about who Jesus was. And Jesus saying, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was my Father who is in heaven. So stuff was beginning to come to them, but they hadn't pieced it all together yet. And so they go up the mountain. And when they get up this, uh, uh, on this mountain in Matthew 17, all of a sudden something happens to Jesus. The flesh that had concealed the glory that was on the inside and the clothes that had concealed his flesh transformed. He began, all of his majesty peeked through. 
And you saw stuff you've never seen before. His clothes began to shine as whiter, whiter than any bleach could bleach them. And his face began to shine like the sun. And they were just, oh. And then on top of that, Moses and Elijah showed up. By the way, they were dead. <laughs> Moses had died a good 15, 1,400 years earlier. And, and Elijah, 700. They were gone. Gone. And, and, and see, Peter and James and John thought Jesus was just taking them to Starbucks for a small group meeting. They didn't know this was going to happen. And, 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 and I don't even know, I don't know what, I don't know why or how Elijah and Moses showed up. I, I, I don't get all the Old Testament saints just popping up in places all the time. I don't know how that happens theologically, but they, they were there. And it, it, it's not like they were trying to communicate something so theologically important because it's not even written down what they said to Jesus. This was just one of these moments when they, they were kind of just encouraging him. See, Jesus represented everything that the law and the prophets were. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus was the embodiment of. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the power and works of the prophets. These two had come together, and I imagine Moses and Elijah were just saying, man, you're doing it right. You're representing good, bro. You are really taking it to another level. This is fabulous. We just want you to know in heaven we are cheering you on every day. Peter, James, and John see all this. Peter chimes up, which Peter always does. He's always got something to say. And he says, I know what we need to do. Whenever God shows up in an unusual way, why do we think we know what needs to be done? We always think we got a plan. He showed up for me. I know all oh God, you care. Thank you. Okay, this is my plan. Would you please be a part? Peter says, we need to set up three buildings, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And the father has to step in in the middle of his conversation. He says, Quiet. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We don't need to listen to you. FYI, if Jesus, Moses, and Elijah show up, just shut up. <laughs> you can't add anything to the conversation. <laughs> the beauty of Peter is this. He didn't buck. You know, it is, it is hard to stay on the road and do the right thing. When you don't have anybody correcting you for what you're doing wrong, you're really doing good. Because the enemy is opposing you constantly. It's hard just to stay on the road when you are doing well. You feel his opposition on a regular basis. But it's even harder when, you, when you've missed the mark and somebody has to tell you you missed the mark. Now pride rises. You feel this, who in the world are you telling me what to do? I can't believe you would even, who, I mean, let me tell you about your, that's the first thing we want to do is not only defend, but attack. We want to save our own lives. As soon as we feel corrective measures coming, we want to preserve what we want people to see about us. And the beauty about Peter, although he was impetuous and did stuff he shouldn't do at times and said things he shouldn't say, you never see him once fighting back. You see him submitting every time. How do you do? How is it when somebody, <laughs> I know how difficult it is when God has to correct you all by himself, but how is it when he uses somebody else's mouth to do so?
What rises up on the inside of you? Are you willing to say, thank you so much because I didn't see it? I appreciate that. Proverbs says, rebuke and correction are a way of life. We need to enjoy it. This is the humility that Peter had and why God could continue to exalt him every time he did something wrong because every time he did something wrong, he, meaning Peter now, humbled himself intentionally. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of his glory. We were there on the mountain. I saw it. And it's important that you not just be able to say that your relationship with God is based on what you do in church. Your Christianity should not be defined by your church attendance. Having said that, you better show up. <laughs> but this should not define you. I, if I have heard this explanation as the verification for somebody's spirituality once, I've heard it a thousand times. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to Mount, Mount something, something church. I go to, to First Peace and Peace and something, something church. I go to Grace Covenant. No, no, that's not what I asked you. That's not what I asked you. Are you a Christian? Don't let your church attendance define your spirituality. Church attendance just means you showed up. Peter said this. I'm an eyewitness of stuff. Now, there's no way, very little way, that any of us are going to have an encounter like Peter had on the mountain. That was amazing. I, I, I've never had, nor do I think I will have a moment like that. But let me tell you something. Simply because I can't see him in the flesh doesn't mean I am not an eyewitness. The conviction with which I speak to you on a regular basis is filled with life experience and I testify about the grace of God in my life not to brag because I know what I am not I realize how messed up I could be and how I could blow it in a minute but it's to give you a window into a life that is trying to live well and you can't see me although I see you at Starbucks or Costco in the community every once in a while you don't know how I live so the only way I can give veracity to the words that I speak is to testify to you about the victory that I possess on a regular basis and that only by the grace of God so when I spend my Wednesdays which is my study day studying I don't do it just to develop a good message I don't do it just to figure out how I can go one point two point three point and then have some point sub points under that I spend three to four hours of developing a message but the message I develop is much more crafted on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday through living than it is on my study on Wednesday. And I'm asking God, Lord, I just don't want to articulate. I want to be an eyewitness, so I need to see you move in my life. I need to see the revelation of who you are in a deeper way than I ever have before. And there are many people who go through stuff and don't see God in it, and as a result, don't come out better than when they went in. In fact, sometimes they come out more bitter. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about, the, uh, he kind of gives his inaugural message for his entire ministry. We call it the Beatitudes. He says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
So what does your insight about who God is and what he looks like in your circumstances depend upon? How pure your heart is. Because if your heart is pure, you will see God in places that you would normally not see him. You assume that he's not in certain spots because you would want him to be there. Surely you can't be in that. This is too hard. God, how can you be in this circumstance? God, is there any way that you could be in my sickness? No. Listen, we can theologically work all the way around to talking about the miraculous power of God who heals. And I believe in that regularly. I want folk to come down and receive the prayer from the elders so that they can be healed. James 5, 15 and 16. That is necessary and good. But talk to Job. You got to talk to Job every once in a while before you get so regimented and pigeonhole God into one way of moving. His wife wanted him to curse God and die. His wife didn't like him anymore because he was filled with boils. Lost all his hair. Sick as could be. Stank. Couldn't figure out which way was up. And yet he said every day, I will not blame God. I will find him through this. We don't want God to be where we don't want him to be. But a pure heart will be able to see him through it. And you will come out better rather than bitter from your circumstance. And hear me, you will have an eyewitness account. And eyewitness accounts allow you to speak with the kind of clarity and veracity that simply theology does not. Peter, Peter says this, I didn't get this secondhand. I was an eyewitness. We can be eyewitnesses. Secondly, he said, I heard some stuff because I was with him on the holy mountain. Such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When the father bestowed glory and honor on him, we were there. You got to open your ears. You don't just have to open your eyes. You need to open your ears to what God is saying. You need to hear certain things that you're not hearing. You need to open your word and say, God, fix my life. Don't just open your word in order to find something that makes you feel good. Open your word sometimes to find something whereby you can hear God saying, stop that. Don't do that anymore. Open your ears. And the longer you go in your relationship with God, the more you need to turn up your hearing aid. Because you'll get more entrenched in how you think he's moved. Because he has moved so beautifully in your life. Ask Joshua. Joshua saw God move with Moses all his life. He saw God do some marvelous things. I mean, amazing things with Moses. And now it was his turn to lead. And, and as he was coming into the promised land, he saw this guy on a horse. And he was strapped he was strong. He was mighty. And he was somebody that Joshua did not expect to see approach him. Joshua was going into the promised land. This guy was coming out. And remember, Joshua was told by God, you take all those folk who are in the promised land. That's your job. This is your land now. And so as Joshua saw this guy coming out, he thought, this must be one of my adversaries. And I did not know they would be this well equipped. He looks at him. Says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And the man says, wrong question. 
I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. Who are you for? The longer you go in God, God's going to reveal himself in ways like you never thought possible. And sometimes if you don't ask the right questions and, and put your ear to hear the right answers, you'll fight him. You'll fight him when he's doing something you don't expect. Joshua got on his knees and said, I'm your boy. Just want you to know, I am your boy. I don't know what this looks like. I never saw Moses go through. This is what he's going through in his mind. Moses never had to deal with you. I don't know who you are, but I want you to know, whatever you want, I'm willing to do that. You got to hear differently the longer you go in God. When I was growing up, we had, we had radios and cars that you had to turn a dial to get to a station. There were little buttons that you could push, but sometimes they didn't work. They didn't go exactly. They almost hit the 97, the 91.9. It was like 91.9 and a half. And so you got a little static. You had to use a little dial to turn it back. Just get it. That's what you have to do in hearing God. You got to go old school and say, go through all of the. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? I know I'm going to find you. And simply because it takes longer than you thought possible is no excuse to quit. You just keep searching on that dial till you find his voice. And it may not be one you like to hear. He might tell you something that goes contrary to everything that you think is right. But you say, yes, sir. That's what I was looking for. He said, we were eyewitnesses and we heard stuff on that holy mountain. Thirdly, he says he followed. Peter followed. Now, he says this. We did not follow cleverly devised tales, which implies that although they did not follow things, there were some things that they did follow. And what did they follow? What they saw and what they heard. He gives explanation to what they didn't follow from what they did see and hear. And as a result, they did follow the Lord. We need to make sure that what we see and hear allows us the privilege of acting. It's not about us getting smarter. Though I would love for intellect to rise, the IQ spiritually needs to increase in this church. Our corporate IQ, not just our individual. That there was a prophetic word given to us a couple of months ago that we are called to be a people that have a corporate wisdom. I don't even know what that looks like. But I know what God has said. That wisdom is to be given to us as a people to help people untie knots that are so mangled that nobody else can do it than God. He's the only one that can figure it out, and he wants to give us that kind of wisdom. We need to develop a corporate mindset mindset where our IQ increases so that we become more relevant to the problems in our society. Having said that, as smart as I want you to be, I'd rather have you be better than smarter. I want you to increase in your competency of living well. And following Jesus is is evidence that you are living well. If you are following him well, then you are finding that fruit is just pouring out of your life on a regular basis. That you're experiencing victory over sin. That you're experiencing the kind of fruit that people can eat from, not just you, but others. Patience and kindness, they want to be around that. They want to be around somebody who is tolerant of their weaknesses and allows them the privilege to grow and doesn't feel like they are so territorial that they are going to give them what they've got because it's theirs. 
They want to be around people who are generous. The fruit of the Spirit ought to be yours for others to eat, not just you. Following Jesus, this is what it looks like. And although he didn't follow cleverly devised tales, Peter said, he did follow what he saw and heard, and he became a man that helped change the world. What you see and what you hear is supposed to aid in your following so you can help change your world. The result was this. It says that they had the prophetic word made more sure. And they were able to make something known. When you see things and hear things, and then you follow, let me tell you what happens to the word that you've been listening to and, and, and adhering to. It's a beautiful cyclical effect. You see, you hear, you follow. The moorings of Scripture get, get driven down so deep in your soul that, that it supports much more than it used to. And now you can take much more than you ever thought you could take. You can do much more than you ever thought you could do. You can, you can apply scriptural principles and truth much quicker and get more done in less time. Why? Because there's a foundation on the inside of you whereby you don't question anymore whether the Bible is the authority of God's word. Whether it, it really is God's word. You don't question whether he's going to do what he said he's going to do. You know it to be true because you've now lived it. And the beauty is, when that prophetic word is made more sure, it makes you want to see things and hear things better so you can follow better, so you can get the word made more sure in your life, so you can see things and hear things and follow better, so you can get the word made more sure in your life. It is a beautiful cyclical effect that doesn't stop, to which Paul then says, in an in, in, in encapsulation about how tight he is with Jesus, he says, I want you to know, that neither life, nor death, nor hunger, nor sword, nor famine, nor any created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God. That wasn't just a declaration of how God was so committed to him. He knew that. He knew that when Jesus died. He got that. The issue was, how close are you going to be to Jesus? It's possible for God to commit all of his love to you and for him to never want to be separate from you, but you to be separate from him. Paul said, I'll make sure that nothing on this planet separates me from him. The moorings were so deep in his life. And this is, this is where we all have to get to where the prophetic word, the word called the word, the Bible, is made so sure that we will never leave him. Ever. We don't have to make a redecision. We don't have to rededicate. It's just one step after another up Mount Zion until we live in his presence forever. Secondly, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised, devised tales when we made known to you. So as a result of seeing, hearing, and following and having this foundation firm in your soul, your job is then to make it known to somebody. Known. If we found out that a guy, a molecular, molecular biologist, had developed a cure for cancer in 1984, and he dies in 2014, 30 years later, and he leaves in his will the formula for the cure of cancer, 
there would be two responses. One, thank God we have it. Two, what was wrong with that dude? How in the world could he live 30 years with the cure to cancer and not tell somebody? How come he didn't make it known? Why didn't he? Do you know how many people died in that 30-year period? What was wrong with him? Minimally, gross neglect. Maximally, without the, the actual punishment of, of incarceration, people would ascribe criminal conduct to this fellow because of his attitude, selfishness. I imagine all of heaven kind of looks at us Christians, we Christians who have the cure for death and wonders, how come they don't make it known? Why are they keeping it for themselves? There are folks that have been saved for 30 years, pass on into glory, and never tell a soul about what they know. Peter says, we made known to you what we saw and what we heard and what we followed. We made known to you. I beg you, make known to somebody this wonderful story you've got about what Jesus did for you. Lastly, what did he want his readers to get? One, that they needed to pay attention. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Paying attention is really important. Do you remember when you were in school? Some of you still are. Uh, to pay attention, you had to do some things. To get the information from the instructor, it was more than just the instructor speaking and you listening. You had to do some stuff in order to make sure that you were paying attention. Like, take notes? Yes? And, and, and if you t took notes. I don't know anybody in school who didn't take notes. Why did you take notes? Pardon me? Remember. Partially, but remembering wasn't the goal, or else you'd still remember. 90% of what you learn in school, you don't know. You could care less about. Because your goal was not to remember. Your goal was to pass the test. Pass the class. Pass. You needed to make sure that you wrote the information down because you had a test on Friday. When you come into church, now I don't use pen and paper anymore. I use finger to iPad. Finger to phone. But when you come in church, do you take notes? Do you pay attention like that? Well, you don't think you have a test on Wednesday? You don't think there is some trial right around the corner that you're going to have to pass? And maybe that you are in church for more than just doing your due for a Sunday, that God might want to supply you with information necessary to pass the test so you don't have to retake it. <laughs> Just maybe pay attention. There are people who haven't paid attention and one day has dawned after another. And because they didn't pay attention, they did not notice what God was doing. And the morning star did not rise in their souls. And let me tell you what this is like. He's giving progression. Lamp in a dark spot means a little flame, a flicker in the midst of darkness. Yet the night is coming to an end and the day is going to dawn. And when you see the day dawning, he begins to illuminate everything else around you. And then you begin to get perspective about how you fit. But the morning star rising in your hearts, that is, is the revelation and the insight about why in the world he's placed you on the planet and how you should best function in the circumstances you now see. But if nobody's paying attention, days dawn into night, 
and then dawn again, and then go into night. And, and, and before you know it, 15 years has passed, and that believer who gave his heart to Jesus in 2012, now in 2027, is still sucking on a spiritual bottle because they weren't paying attention. Peter says, pay attention. And he's writing to people who are reading his letter. So reading doesn't mean paying attention. He's got to say it in the midst of his letter. Pay attention. Figure out a way to get as much out of whatever you hear as possible. And then lastly, know that every prophetic word, this word that we have called the Bible, is the authority of Almighty God. It is his word. Though it was penned by man, it was inspired by Almighty God. And we need to treat it with holy reverence. We need to love it and consider it the most valuable tool we have got for living. Solomon told his boys, the letter called Proverbs, he said, value my words, my son. Treasure them and desire them more than silver and more than gold, for they will profit you more than temporal things. Proverbs 2 and 3. Let this word be that which you hold more dear than your bank account. Love it. Get in it and read it. It is the authority. It is the word. It is the, the, the message of Almighty God for your benefit. And that we don't read it every day is to our own shame. It is so valuable and so good. May you develop a resurgence of love and affection for this Bible that goes beyond just your obligatory, well, I must do my devotion. Get up every day. Or before you go to bed, however you want to do it. And the Bible, gosh, I mean, it's so easy to get now. You don't even have to bring your Bible. You don't have to bring a book into school or in, into work. You don't have to take that big, it's on your phone. You can get a Bible on your phone. God has made it so easy. He's made it so easy. So easy. Read your Bible every day. Every day. Every day, let's pray.